I'm gonna set this over here because I'm gonna have to go home and grab my charger and grab because apparently my phone didn't charge last night. Uh oh. So I'm gonna work on getting this started first and then I'll go over and grab it. Well, let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Brother Tony, would you lead us as we pray? I can Father, thank you for this opportunity to come to your house, Lord. Thank you for your watching care you've given us this week. May you continue to be at those uh, prayer requests, those on our prayer list, uh, be with each and every one of those needs and situations, especially with Blake this morning and be with him as he has the surgery or whatever they have to do with him, that you would uh, protect him, heal him, and uh, may gain his health once again, Lord. Continue to be with those that are traveling, those that are sick. Uh, be with the churches throughout the land that's uh, standing for your truth. That you encourage them, bless them. Be with the missionaries as they labor in your foreign fields. That you be with the services this morning. That you be with the teachers. He brings the class. Uh, our pastors. He brings the word to us today. Um, and we have the open hearts and minds to hear and receive the word that you have us for today. Uh, be with each of us as we go through this week. And thanks most of all for your son dying on the cross for us. Amen. Well, this morning, hopefully this will be relatively brief. I, I, the thing, there was a word that came into my mind when I was thinking about the Apostle Paul. And uh, that word was commitment. If there's anybody that I've ever known who was committed to what he was doing all the time, from probably from his youth, it was the Apostle Paul. When he was Saul of Tarsus, he was committed. He was a Pharisee. He was very committed to serving God. That was his purpose in life. He intended to do that. He did the best he could even though it wasn't right <laughs> wasn't what God wanted but he served God the best he knew how he, he was very legalistic very dedicated very uh, what said he, was, he was a zealot he, he overdid everything he was he was strong in what he did. He was a no-nonsense kind of guy. Had to do it uh, to the very limit. He was committed to serving God. God said, you know, that's admirable. But, Paul, you, it hurts to kick against the pricks, doesn't it? He says it does hurt to kick against the pricks. He said, you know you're not doing what's right. So, Paul, Paul led by example. He said, this is, this is what ought to be done. This is, ought to, this is the way it ought to go. And he started leading other people. And, you know, and he was a natural leader right from the start. But, God said he's doing it the wrong way, Paul. And 
when Paul was converted, he was still Paul. He still was. But God said, I can use those traits. I can, he is a vessel that I can use. He has attributes that I want used in a better way. And he turned Paul around 180 degrees. And rather than being legalistic and authoritarian, and he became a loving man. A man who loved God, loved his fellow man, loved the people that he was sent to, even though they weren't Jews. And he felt that everyone should be a Jew. But he even looked down on those who weren't prior to his conversion. But God says, I'm going to... You go on into Damascus and it'll be told what you are going to do. What you are going to suffer. For my name's sake. And Paul didn't have much choice in the matter. But then on the other hand, he said yes Lord and win <laughs> which is good but God taught him and I'm not sure all of the places that Paul was after his conversion but there was a time in there where we don't have recorded where he was other than he was as I understand in the deserts of Arabia from what I've heard and God taught him as he was there in a solitary place I don't know that there was any he got away from people and that that was probably a good thing but Paul continued to be a committed man committed to serving God in 1 Corinthians I want to read in chapter 2 and not a lot there, but in chapter 2, he says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined, not, determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified so this was how he came to the Corinthian church he says when I when I was there among you I I didn't uh, I didn't talk to you with sophistry I wasn't there with the wisdom of man I didn't you know they ha they heard enough of that from the Greeks the Greeks were big on that, that sophistry thing, uh, to the knowing, the science. The word science itself comes from the Greek that says, I know. <laughs> and uh, so he said, I didn't do that. I, I w didn't come to you as a great orator. I didn't come with you, all of that. 
He said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified for the sins of mankind. And he said, I, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He, he was doing things that he, he wasn't quite sure, but God was directing him. And he, I think that he learned. You know, the city of Corinth was a very, very sinful city. They had one uh, temple there that had over, I, I forget how many thousand of prostitutes just there in that city. That was a, their worship in that. And that was horrible. But, he came to these people and his, he says, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The wisdom of men is, God puts, calls it nonsense. But he says, I want your faith to rest on the wisdom of God, the power of God, not just the wisdom of God. God shows his wisdom in everything he does. But people can ignore, tend to ignore that. They don't ignore his power, whether it's thunder and lightning or hurricanes or, or a northeaster wind. They, they didn't sail the Mediterranean in the wintertime they could help it. The winds were from the wrong direction. And God directed that. But the power of God, people respect that. People see it and they, they tremble. Well, Paul said, I, I want your faith to rest on that. So, he says there's a different kind of thing that everyone respects and I want your faith to rest on that that's God's power not man's wisdom not man's uh, understanding or, or imagined understanding of what God does you know I I believe God I don't always believe all the things that men say about God there's an awful lot that is said about God that I Say, so, wait a minute, this, this doesn't meet with what God's Word says. This doesn't agree even with science. This doesn't agree with what I, what I know of, what's, what I see about me. It just doesn't register. So, this was Paul's commitment, that their faith rests on God, on His power not on the wisdom of men. Let's turn over here to chapter 4. Let's see. This is the way Paul wanted people to understand who he was after his conversion. Now this wouldn't have been what he would say before his conversion. 
chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and of stewards of the mysteries of God. He said, We're, We are servants. We are slaves to God. And stewards chosen by God to dispense the mystery of God. That's an interesting thing. Dispense a mystery or, or to be a steward of a mystery. What's a what is a what is this mystery? In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. He says Apollos and I have to be trustworthy. We've been charged by God to to do a mission to to take care of this matter. He says it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. So how do you judge trustworthiness? Whether people do what they're directed to do, whether they do it properly, whether they do it in the right manner. But Paul says, you know, I don't worry too much about that. He said, yes, I, I do the best I can to be trustworthy, to do what God wants. He says, verse 3, but to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. He says, I don't even, I don't even worry about that. You know, it's, it's not a big thing. You, you can look at me and you judge, that's, that's your business. I'm not worried about that. He said, or, or any other human court, you know, whether it was a Roman government or, or the city council or whatever, the Sanhedrin, all of these courts, any human court. He says, you can judge me as you will. He said, I don't even examine my own self. He said, I'm, I'm not too worried about that because I'm doing what God says. He says, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. He says, I don't know of anything I've done wrong, but in, any, but in a court, when I'm judged, I won't be acquitted of, of any crime that I may have done by my own reasoning. But the one who examines me is the Lord says he is my judge he's the one that I answer to he's the one who can judge righteously he's the one who who is the one that I give answer to therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come from him, come, come to him from God. And he says, this is how you're judged. This is how I'm judged. All of us will be judged by God who judges righteously. 
He will bring everything to light. It, it, all of the ideas, all the thoughts of men's hearts, the, uh, the things that are done in darkness, the things hidden in darkness will be disclosed, and the motives of men's hearts. He says, God sees why you did what you do. He sees why I did what I do, what I have done. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. If you're going to be praised, God is the one to praise you. If you're going to be condemned in, a, in his court, he's going to judge you righteously. And he's going to judge me. And, you know, the Apostle Paul said, I, I am subordinated to God. I, I am the least of his servants. This idea uh, here of uh, being a servant in this, play, this case, uh, they had a ship called a Triene. Triene? I'm not sure of the pronunciation of that, but the Romans had a ship that was powered by oars. And there were three levels of oarmen uh, aboard that ship. And he said, this is the lowest level. <laughs> I'm, I'm that kind of a servant. I'm, I'm the one down on the bottom. I don't even see where we're going. I just pull my oar and do my job. And... Uh, that's, as I understand it, that's the, the term here. Uh, that he says, this is, this is who I am. I'm, I'm a steward. This, I'm a slave doing the job that I'm given to do. I just pull my oar and, and stay in rhythm with the rest. You know, that's what, that was the idea of that. Well, let's turn to the book of Ephesians now and look at another example. And I don't know. I thought I'd put a bookmark in there, and I evidently didn't. But that's uh, Ephesians chapter 3. And I'll begin there with verse 1. He starts out saying, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God, of God's grace, which was given to me for you. He says, I was given a stewardship by God for you. If you've heard about that, this, is, this was his ministry. that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as, as I wrote before you in brief. So he speaks here about a, a former letter that he'd written to the Ephesian church. So we're looking at second Ephesians here, evidently, because he had written another letter before this. By referring to this, 
when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. He's talking about this mystery that was that he spoke of there in Corinthians also. Well, let's let's go on reading here. He says, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, and as, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister. This is that minister, this is that mystery. He says, I was made a minister of this according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. This wasn't my power, wasn't my doing. This was God's doing. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable, unfathomable riches of Christ to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Rulers and authorities in heavenly places. How many rulers are there in heavenly places? What kind of rulers are we talking about here? I don't know. But they were shown things. They, these, as I understand it, they desired to look into these things when the prophets were told to prophesy of Jesus Christ, they said, we want to know what we're prophesying about. The angels desired to look into those things, and they didn't know. That's the mystery. This mystery is what he's talking about here. So he was given a stewardship of a mystery that the Gentiles are to be fellow heirs with with the Jews in the body of Christ. Wow. That's the mystery. The Jews would never have guessed that. <laughs> the rest of the world wouldn't have guessed that. Those that worshipped idols certainly wouldn't have guessed that. It was a mystery to the whole world. It was unknown up to this point, up to the point where Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, paid the price of sin, so that all men by faith might enter into that mystery, in, to be fellow heirs with the Jews in the body of Christ. What's the body of Christ? It's the church. And it's not, you know, the body of, of believers before were the Jews. That's who they were. The rest didn't necessarily believe in God. There were those who did. 
And they came and they worshipped God in their own way. But this type of thing, that Jesus was the one who brought the power of God to man, was unknown. This was all new information. Uh, even to the angels. The angels didn't know anything about this. Here, look at verse 10 there. He says, uh, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Well, maybe angels are rulers and authorities. God gave them power to do his will. You know, in the King James says principalities and powers. Which to me, I always thought it was the power of the, the heavenly and the principles of the heavenly places. I wish it speaks more to me Certainly. than the other interpretation. Sure. And and I, I welcome <laughs> comments like that. Yeah, I, you know, to me, it just sounds better. I don't know. I, I, I can understand the principalities and powers better than, than the rulers. I guess I don't understand who the rulers would be. Okay. Because, you know. <clears throat> yeah, I, I'm reading this out of the New American Standard. Yeah, I noticed it was different. Yeah, I, and I, I did this because it, you know, some, some people have been reading the King James all their life. I have. But not everyone understands the King James. But this, I, I think this is a good translation too because there are places that the King James doesn't, doesn't register with, Amer with the American language, I'm not not the English language, but the American language. So, look at another thing. Whose whose idea was this mystery? It was God's. It was purposed by God, and carried out by God through Jesus Christ. He commissioned Jesus to come here for the purpose of paying the price of sin as a man to come from heavenly places and to submit himself to the degra degradation of serving mankind as a man and yet as a son of God. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's verse 11 there. In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. That confident access. What does that read in the King James there, Tony? According to the eternal purpose which he has purposed in Christ Jesus, our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Yes. Faith in Jesus Christ. The faith that we are given. It says, by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and not of works, lest any man should boast. He said, this is God's doing. In, and we have boldness and confidence, confident access through faith in him, in Jesus. So 
he goes on there. He says, don't, don't worry about my tribulations. He says, therefore, I, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. He said, God has given me a job to do, and I'm doing that. If I suffer, so be it. Let it. Don't worry about that. God will take care of that. He'll take care of me. Paul was given a ministry, an appointment to a purpose. That was God's doing. It was God's purpose. Paul was a chosen vessel. We know that in Acts chapter 9. He was, when he received his sight there in Damascus, he was an instrument that God could use for his purpose. We understand that about the Apostle Paul. Well, let's take another step. Who am I? Who are you? Are you an instrument that God can use for his purpose? Are you committed, as Paul was? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to do God's will in your life? We, as the body of Christ, and, and that's what the church is, right? Are also to be used for God's purpose. As His Spirit directs, As his spirit directs you and I, each of us, individually and as a body. We are the body of Christ. You ever seen somebody who, who was paralyzed, who had an arm that just hung there and he couldn't do a thing with it? It didn't respond to the helm. It didn't respond to his brain. It didn't do what he told it to do. It limits what the body can do, doesn't it? What about each of us? Are we doing what God wants in our lives? Are we committed to being what God wants us to be as the body of Christ? This idea of commitment isn't an easy road to follow. But that's what God says he wants. He wants committed people to do his will, to be his body. To do God's purpose as his spirit directs us. Your brain directs your body to move your hand or your arm or your, your, to blink your eyes or whatever you do. But if you're, you have a, your nerves don't reach some part of your body and it doesn't respond to what you want it to do, you've got a problem. We don't want to be a problem in the house of God, any of us. We need to have that commitment. And I, you know, I, I don't know what else I can say on that. Brother... Brother Tyler, you have something to say. First Peter chapter 4 um, talks a little bit about some of these things. Um, 
the latter part of that chapter there, verses, uh, most people will read, you know, down through, I think 16, down through 19, at the end of that chapter there. It says, Yet if a man suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the household of God, and if it first be, uh, begin at us, what shall the end of it them that obey not the gospel of God? And if righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly or the sinner appear? Wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Amen. It very much so talks about the, the, the faithfulness of, of those who serve, serve the Lord. That's what Paul was saying. He said, I, you, you judge according to your wisdom, but God is my judge. And he's the one who is my provider. He's the one who is my strength. He, he's the one that I rely upon. Go ahead. And he, and he also said, I mean, giving reference there, where he talks about for, for, this, uh, for the time has come that the judgment must begin at the house of God. It does begin with the house of God because Absolutely. it first began with his children, the children of Israel. And at the time when Christ came and he says, you know, all, freely offered the opportunity for them to partake of the new, a new, new covenant. Yes. And it wasn't, it wasn't that he was nullifying the law, that no. it was of, of little effect anymore. It was the fact that, like he said in the scripture over there we read over in Galatians, the, the law was meant to be a tutor yes. for the thing to come, so, which was Christ. And therefore their dismissal of Christ those that, that had that opportunity at the time, it was, it was harsh. It was, it was severity, but it was also the kindness of God there, which we'll, you'll get into later when I'm yes. in my message. Yes. It was also the kindness of God that he made this covenant, this, this new covenant, the new and living way, able for us to do that. Because yes. also in his kindness and his severity saying, hey, this is how this is going to be, those Jews were rendered to be disobedient because they didn't they didn't adhere to Christ. But yes. they were still given the opportunity. Yes. And he even gave the opportunity to, to those who had died yes. and gone gone yes. on. And I mean that's the, that's the statement he says. He says that not you know that all that any man should perish but all should be come to the knowledge. Yes. So that that's what he's talking about here in first Peter chapter four, a similar thing. He's saying, you know, Judgment begins at the household of God. First, it began at us. What shall be to those that are disobedient to the gospel? He's saying, we're yeah. disobedient. He says, it starts here with us. Even even those of us who are doing the best we know how. Like Paul says, I, I don't have anything on my conscience that I know that I've done wrong. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't judge myself too harshly right now. God is my judge. You know, if I judge with worldly judgment, my judgment, my reasoning, my thinking, I'm liable to be wrong. God knows my heart, and he's the one who can condemn or or acquit one and, or the other. And that's the importance of, of us leaning on one another. Because in those moments of weakness, when we are struggling with those things, it is one another... Donna can see something in me, and I'm, I know, I'm struggling. I'm having a bad day, and I may something, say something hypercritical, and she's like, "Is that the way that, that the Lord would want you to be? Is that is that the way that Jesus expects for you to act?" That's and it's like, "Oh, 
it's you know, good to I have shouldn't, somebody. I shouldn't be. I shouldn't say that that severely, or I shouldn't say it that way. Right. And the same way, in, in that instance, when we're in our failings, that's where we pick one another up, as Christ does for us. Yes. That we can continue yes. to move forward towards towards eternity, towards, towards eternity, towards God's purpose, rather than towards what we think yes. God wants. Yes. That's that's basically the message. You know. Uh, I've got just a few minutes here before 11. And and I'm going to stop right there. It, with one exception. I've had a song on my heart. And I don't... It's not in our songbook. But I would like to sing a song that was on my heart. My life, my love, I give to thee, the Lamb of God who died for me. Oh, may I ever faithful be, my Savior and my God. I'll live for him who died for me. How happy then my life shall be. I'll live for him who died for me, my Savior and my God. I now believe thou dost receive, for thou hast died that I might live. And now henceforth I'll trust in thee, my Savior and my God. I'll live for him who died for me. How happy then my life shall be. I'll live for him who died for me, my Savior and my God. Oh, thou who died on Calvary to save my soul and make me free. I'll consecrate my life to Thee, my Savior and my God. I'll live for Him who died for me. How happy then my life shall be. I'll live for Him who died for me, my Savior and my God. I, I think about that commitment. The commitment we made to serve God when we were saved. Another commitment we made when we were baptized into the church, into God's body, when we became part of, of His plan by faith, by the faith of Jesus Christ, that he gave us as a gift. There remain three gifts. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. But that faith and that hope give us a, an assurance of God's love. And we need to be faithful to his purpose as his body.
as his church. Don't have anything else to say. Thank you. Believe it or not, we're a little ahead of schedule. <laughs> Made up for that time that I thought we were held up. Take a little break here. Yeah, I appreciate that song. I hadn't heard it in a long time. I knew that one too. Oh. 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 Six, just back a page or two here. Oh, 
continue just as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity to assemble together, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to, to honor and worship and glorify you, Lord, as we have the freedom to. Lord, we ask that you would be with those who are a number that are sick and in need of healing, Lord. We ask that you would uh, heal them, Lord, that they might be able to join with us, Lord, that we can continue to encourage and uplift one another as you would have us to. We ask that you would give us the strength and the courage, Lord, and, and our faith, Lord, that we would continue to speak boldly your word despite the, the popularity of your word. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us of our sins and our shortcomings before you. Lord, we ask for your mercies as we travel and those are the things we go about our daily lives, Lord, that we would bring honor and glory to you. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. coffee now I needed something cold <laughs> I got a little hot this morning this morning if you will turn with me to the book of Ephesians Ephesians is where we are, and I have a New American Standard and I have King James, so we'll look at a few things in each one of them, actually. I think it's good for us to look at that. Uh, not to, not being tongue-in-cheek, but, <laughs> but this morning, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 1. First, I want to give a little back backstory or information um, regarding the the city of Ephesus and the time that we are, we're looking at. Um, and then I'll briefly turn over to Acts chapter 19 for some backstory and kind of what involves this whole, this whole epistle here. So of course we know that the, the church at Ephesus was located on the Western peninsula of what is now considered Turkey. And I'll show you where it's at. Uh, if we're not familiar. So the city of Ephesus is located here on the extreme Western edge of Turkey on the edge of the Aegean Sea. It was a major port for the church there, or for, excuse me, for the country there. Of course, we know it was through the, the Greece, uh, through Gre the Grecian occupation from, um, I'm trying to think of his name, it's left me, Alexander the Great. Um, of course, it was through the time of the Roman Empire as well as onto the Ottoman, the Muslim uh, kings, the Byzantine Empire, and of course, the lastly, the most recent before modern-day Turkey was the Ottoman Empire. Of course, we, when you think about this particular um, city, one of the things that I would like for us to remember is that this was one of the chief seats for the worship of the goddess Diana, or the, uh, the goddess named Artemis, in uh, Greco-Roman mythology. So, very important place for a lot of pagan idol worship. Um, course which the account in Acts chapter 19 draws focus but I want to first mention that in this particular city it was a very it was a very large port 
And it was built, the port was built so that it kind of was suspended in the water because we know the, the coast along Turkey and Greece and Rome were not very good port, port, you know, making for good port cities. So they had to build and fashion their ports in such a way that they could get access to the city because a lot of it was on a lot of steep-faced cliffs and things like that. So towards the 15th century, which is the Ottoman Empire, which is closer to modern time, Ephesus was eventually left vacant. It was, it was abandoned because the port was in such disrepair that they couldn't do anything to the city. So they just abandoned the city altogether after the Ottomans took control. So not something else notable to mention is this is where in Acts chapter 19, I won't read a ton. I would rather not uh, let you all read this. Of course, we just covered it recently in, in recent months with Brother Ed in his Sunday school class. But I felt it good for us to call to mind this thing, kind of familiarize ourselves with where the Ephesian church was and what they had to deal with. So we know particularly in the passage there in chapter 19 of Acts that they were dealing with Paul, of course, in his third missionary journey was journeying through Asia Minor and on through the, the Balkan Peninsula there, what we call modern-day Greece and Macedonia, some of those nations we're familiar with. But he had happened upon some disciples there and asked him if they had, they, they were disciples, of course it says. But it says, have you heard of the Holy Spirit? And he, they says, no, we haven't. So he talked to them and, and, and taught them more, more precisely concerning Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit. And they were baptized. And of course, they received the Holy Spirit as well. Um, and knew about the baptism under repentance was the baptism of change, right? So to change their lives from whatever they were steeped in before that. So then he continues on there. He spends quite a bit of time there reasoning with them for a space of three months, and he kind of upsets the the apple cart, so to speak, because the, the temple worshipers and the tradesmen there that service the temple of Diana and Artemis, he took away their livelihood. He affected their life in no small way, it seems. So three months he spent there reasoning and and. It says persuading them in, in the King James Version, or in the New American Standard Version, it says persuading them about the kingdom of God. So it wasn't an easy, it wasn't an easy, easy time there, was it? He sent his he had to persuade them. He had to, to reason with them. Of course, we know that most of the uh, the at the time were a lot of philosophical and, and uh, ways of thinking that were different from ours. They were very schooled and thinking differently. And it's been a while since I've taken philosophy and I really hated that class, I'll just tell you. It was not my, for for a class that talks about teaching you how to think freely, it really was not a free thinking class. The only class in college I've ever had to take three different times. So that ought to tell you something right there. Um, and my my primary, my primary foul, foul up in that class was the fact that I served the Lord, and a lot of those teachings didn't teach that way. So that's my my first instructor in the in philosophy was actually a he was a Third Baptist preacher, so he was a Southern Baptist preacher out there in Arkansas, and I know he didn't agree with a lot of what was what what he had to teach in this class, but it was the hardest he was the hardest teacher I've ever had. <laughs> but anyways, not to chase a rabbit, he talks here about 
Um, he says, but when some there in verse 9 that were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily with them in the school of Tyrannus. So he took some of those people and said, okay, you're, you're going to, we need to get you out of this situation. It was not a, he says, they spoke evil of the way. They were, they were plotting against them, I'm sure. So he withdrew them. He took them out of harm's way and took them to somewhere safe. Apparently this school of Tyrannus was a safe place for them to congregate. It was not far away. It was just around the corner. It was just around the corner, wasn't it? But it was safer than where they were, wasn't it? So um, he then again, he after this, he spent two years there. So he spent about two years at three months in, in Ephesus, which was longer than most of the places he spent time. But the one thing that he did there is as he ministered there and as he taught, one of the things that they experienced were these miracles. It was because of the belief there that these things were possible, belief in the Lord. It wasn't that they were practicing magic or anything. It was, you know, uh, that we condemn at this time. It was because it was through their faith in the Lord that they were able to, he was able to exercise these miracles, wasn't it? Which is something that, that kind of is, is trivialized us in this current age. We don't really witness what we would consider miracles in this day and age. We have modern marvels and things like that. But I think, so to speak, sometimes our lack of faith or our, or our unbelief limits us in what the healing from the Lord does, does allow. Amen. He talks about handkerchiefs and aprons that they carried to sick bodies and disease that left, left them and the evil spirits went out. It wasn't the handkerchief that healed them. It was the Spirit of the Lord that, that took care of these illnesses and these uh, infirmities that they had. But then, of course, trying to copycat what was going on there, the sons of Sceva tried to run out this man that was full of demons, and guess what? The demon beat them and ran them off. So then they're like, we, this Jesus we know, and Paul of whom preaches Jesus we know, but we don't know who you are. So again, he... Even the demons understood and knew this. But they says, we're going to make an example of these guys who claim to cast out this name of Jesus. They didn't believe in Jesus or else it would have been probably more effective, don't you think? I think it would have. If they had actually believed in Jesus and rather cast him out in his name. So then here he says, and they go on through this account and of course, it says after this, that, and this became well known, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus and fear fell upon them and all of the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. After they witnessed that, what happened? It says many of those who kept uh, believing, kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those practiced magic brought their books and began to burn them in the sight of all that they counted but the price of them and found that 15,000 pieces of silver. That was a great sum of money. They could have sold it, but they didn't. They just decided to get rid of it altogether. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now after these they finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia and after all of this. So after all of these accounts, of course, he ended up getting run out of the, run out of the place by, by Demetrius, the silversmith, and of course his followers who were mad over losing their livelihood. But it was... Nonetheless, this was a pretty pivotal moment for most of Greece and all that lived there. 
because that was the time in which the word of the Lord spread. So, fast forward to the book, to back over to chapter one of Ephesians. A little bit of backstory there. It was not an easy time for Paul over there in Ephesus, and he encountered a lot of hardship there. But the letter here to the church of Ephesians shows just what efforts that Paul's faith led him to do for the for the brethren there at Ephesus, and for of course for these other brethren that these epistles are written to. So again, Ephesians chapter one, we'll, re, we'll start in verse one there. We're not going to get very far. It says, And Paul the apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he has chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us in the adoptions of son through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So, <clears throat> Paul mentions here in the opening, he says, to the faithful people at Ephesus of the blessings of of being in Christ, right? That was where they had access to, to, be, to being blessed, wasn't it? It wasn't outside of Christ. He says there, just as, as he had, as he the chosen has chosen his people, God has chosen chosen his people to be adopted through Christ. Talks about. The adoption of Christ, of course, we mentioned this over and over when we looked in Galatians a few weeks ago. But what does it truly mean to be adopted? If you're adopted, you're given a status equal to that of the Son. In some cases, greater than. Think about it. You think about it in, in reference to the Jews and the Greeks. As a nation, their rejection of Christ, what? Subsequently, they lost their position as the heir, apparent. <laughs> Didn't mean that they were excluded from that. But he talks about them being given access to adopt. We'll get over to that in just, just a moment. So in this particular passage of scripture, he mentions that, that adoption. And then he gets over to the part about, he says, to the praise and glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and his beloved. In him we have redemption through the blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, there in verse 7, which he lavished upon us in all his wisdom and insight. One of the things that people uh, com commonly uh, will go back to over in verse 5 talks about predestined. predestined. A common thought of, amongst Calvinists is, is that predestined means the individual was predestined. It doesn't matter what happened. That's not the case of what the scripture was mentioning there. We've been talking about what others believe. We've talked about, of course, the Nicolaitans. We talked about the Balaamites. We talked about those who followed after uh, Jezebel. 
over there in Revelations. Well, same thing here. This is where some of the scripture's been twisted to be something that it's not. The preordained or predetermination was for, the, for God to have a people of his own. His original intent, why would God change his mind halfway midstream through something and change it to completely different? Scripture talks about our God as an unchanging God. He didn't change from the Old Testament to the New, did he? He just changed what? He made a better way, didn't he? Through his through Christ. So this preordain or preordination in the Greek there means that it was set up for an apportioned time, basically. It was set up to be so. But it doesn't mean a specific people. Don't believe me, look it up yourself. It'll It'll open your eyes to just what the Lord has said in the scripture about this particular thought there. It was the predetermined thought by the Lord that we would be able to become as sons adopted through the Messiah, that is Jesus. Let's look at Romans chapter 8. one thing to study other religions, it's, it's another thing to be acquainted with what they believe so that you can accurately refute and look with the scripture. That's why the scripture tells us to study to show ourselves approved for that particular purpose. We can rightly divide the word of God by faith then we have a better, we have the leg up that any other entity in this world has compared to us. They don't have that leg up because they don't have the spirit to teach and to God. Romans chapter 8, verse 10. He says, And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet spirit is alive because of righteousness. Excuse me, am I in the right spot? Yes. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. And through his spirit who indwells you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if this is our living according to the flesh, you must die. But if it is of the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body that you will live in. <clears throat> For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to the fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may be also glorified with him. For I consider the, present suffer, the, the suffering of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, 
not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption with the freedom of glory of the children of God. It's a pretty intense passage of Scripture there that we were reading. Over there in verse, uh, verse 12 in the King James Version, it reads something similar, but not quite. It says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. A little bit different there. Talks about we are debtors. King, uh, New American Standard mentions they're under obligation. Under obligation and debtors of the flesh, same thing. We owe a debt, right? But not to the flesh, right? We are our lives to the Lord because he's provided a better and living opportunity for us than any other thing in the flesh can be offered, right? He says, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But it is the spirit that if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Hmm. Sound familiar? <laughs> and that what Jesus talked about? What did he tell the woman? I'm, I'm living water? <laughs> life? What? What is it? Everlasting life. Everlasting life. So it's not a life that we can give up and it's gone. This life in the flesh is going to be gone after that, right? But it's a, a perpetual life. One that's not in flesh and blood, right? So he says, for if ye live there in the, in the King James, after the flesh ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Hmm. So he talks about but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So a little bit different translation there, but you see the you see the context, right? If you put to death the things of the flesh, what's he talking about there? Being under subjection to Christ, right? Putting our flesh to death through baptism, through seeking to be raised in the likeness of Christ. That's that's what he's asked of us to do, right? He says, for many are as led by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. There's the adoption again. It's not expressly mentioned there, but that's what it is. But it requires of us to do what? Put by the Spirit. Put our, put our flesh to death by the Spirit, right? It's a harder concept for people to understand than most people, you know, than, than what we put thought to these days. I know some, I've struggled with it for many years thinking, gosh, that's really kind of, that's kind of difficult. That's why we talk about, Paul talked about, I die daily. He put himself, he put his flesh to death daily. We made a comment about resurrecting our flesh and dragging it around like a dead body to bring it back to life. And you know, it's useless. It's not of any use to us, right? But nonetheless, what was the thought there? Subject ourselves to Christ that we might be made sons like as the opportunity has been presented. He goes on there in the King James. I'll read this again. It says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, there in verse 15. 
He says, what's he talking about the spirit of bondage? Being bound to the flesh, right? He says, the spirit there beareth witness of our spirit that we are children of God. How is that made possible? We can't please it again by works of the flesh, can we? By the spirit. Through faith, right? The world has really watered down what it means to be to have faith, doesn't it? To believe something. I can think something all day long, it doesn't mean it's going to be true, right? I can say the sky is green. It still doesn't matter, the sky's blue out there, isn't it? But I've seen this, and I know you have seen that the scripture is very true to, true to its word. Why? Because there's proof of it. Isn't there? It says, if children and heirs of heirs of God and join heirs with Christ, if so, that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified with him. Hmm. Jubilee, put it down. Thank you, Brother Tony. So, lost my place there for a minute. <laughs> so, this passage mentions adoption made possible through Christ. Why? By putting down our flesh, putting down the old man that we can what be raised in the likeness of Christ that's what Christ taught over there he's like that's what Paul was teaching about them falling at what, what did Jesus say put down your stuff follow after me right they were out there fishing he came preaching that the kingdom of God was coming you think those people just, he come and said, the kingdom of God is coming, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and they just laid their stuff down and walked? No, they knew, they knew the scripture. They knew the teaching there, didn't they? They had been looking and searching for the Messiah diligently, but not all of them were. Some of them were so caught up in the deeds of the flesh that they couldn't see that. I.e., why they had such big problems when Jesus went around and the Pharisees and the Sadducees sought to lay hands on him and kill him because they upset the apple cart. They, he took their power from them, didn't he? This was the intent that Christ offered to the Gentile and the Jews alike. Because from the beginning of creation, that's exactly what God desired when Adam and Eve fell there in the garden, wasn't it? That they would ha he would have a creation that would honor and glorify and believe on him. Be a spokesman for the earth, but glorify God in their, in their station, wasn't it? So let's look back over at uh, Ephesians chapter 1. 
go back down to verse 7 there. It says, And in him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What is redemption? Redemption is mentioned there in the Strong's Concordance as deliverance, a ransom payment for those who believe, for those who abide, right? Faith is abiding in, right? We talked about dwelling places and abiding this morning a little bit in our discussion about translations. So, what does it take? We have to abide in Christ, don't we? It requires us to renounce the deeds of the flesh and to follow after Jesus, doesn't it? That was given access to us through Jesus' sacrifice there. He says, in him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all his wisdom and insight. And he made known to us the mysteries of his will according to his kind intention which he had purposed in him, with him in view of administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ things in heaven and things upon earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end of them uh, that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Hmm. So again, like we talked about this morning in Sunday school, that is kind intention. We talked about that just a little bit. Talked about the mystery. What does it require? What, how, how do we understand the mystery? Go to Lara. Go ahead, Brother Ed. I see you over there thinking. I, I was just thinking here in that verse 12. It says that we should be to the praise of his glory. Who mm -hmm. first trusted Christ. And that was God himself. Amen. Amen. So, if we were purchased back, or redeemed back, redemption, that's what he's talking about, redeeming back. You know, when we redeem, when we turn in a coupon, we're redeeming it to purchase something, aren't we? What we intend to purchase, right? What's that redemption for? It was for us, wasn't it? To redeem the creation back to a point where it is acceptable to God. Through who? Who 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 allowed the redemption to be happened? Through through his son. Through Jesus. So here we see this that he says, with the view of administration suitable to the fullness of time, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things in the upon the earth in him also we have obtained an inheritance let's look at Colossians chapter 1 Colossians chapter 1 
Verse 17. It says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hold, hold, excuse me. In him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it is the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross, of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present himself before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you do continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel, that you may have heard that which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Hmm. Through the sacrifice of Christ that he is able to reconcile all things to him, right? He didn't mince words there, did he? Paul, when he was talking to the church at Colossia. Was very intentional with what he said. in there in verse 17. And he is before all things and in all things hold together. Huh. What does it say there in, in verse 17 in the King James? Can somebody read that for me? And, and he is before all things and by him all things consist. All things consist. They, their existence. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like what holds the atom together. Mm -hmm. The glue, so to speak. Is it okay if she has that? Uh, no. Jubilee. <laughs> My child at her age is still technologically savvy. More than I am. Thank you. So, through all things consist. Mentions that they're, they're held together, right? So, that is that Jesus is, the, is what we have the opportunity to be reconciled unto God. It says he is the, what? The beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might himself might come to have first place in everything. We fashion our life and our example after Jesus, don't we? So if that's the case, does our faith mimic that? Paul was reasoning here with the church at Ephesus in the letter there that they needed to remember these things. That was the purpose for this letter was to continually encourage them in their work. They had a great struggle to endure there dealing with these pagan folks that were giving them quite a bit of difficulty. Let's look at Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11.
says, quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Uh, Verse 20 of chapter 11 of Romans. So quite right, they were broken off of their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. Here we go. To those who fail severity, but to you, God's kindness. And if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to the nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more shall there be who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that partial hardening that happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. She's running off, isn't she? <laughs> so, we'll stop there. Actually, <clears throat> read, actually, I'll read 26 and 27. It says, Thus all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So, to say that those men were without excuse is an understatement, right? That was a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty clear statement there he made over there that he was reading in verse 26 there. It's from Isaiah. So, Paul's mentioning here to the church at Rome was, he says, behold the kindness of God. (laughs) He says, it's a wonderful work. It's extended not only to the wild branch that's been grafted in, but also what? To the natural branch that's been cut off. But what he mentioned there was because the reason why it could be cut off was because of their unbelief. It's not man's words here, but that's what it's saying. He says, if that. They didn't believe, he says, it was for their severity that don't believe and for the kindness to those that did. But again, we know that what the scripture says about that, God wouldn't have anyone to perish, but what? All to the kind of knowledge would be saved, right? That's what it says. Does it give us the right to pass judgment on others? On the contrary, We are to be more gracious and loving like Jesus was. That they might see that kindness that the Lord would have have to extend to them. Mentioned some of these things in in Ephesians chapter 3 that you read this morning. I won't turn over there for that that purpose because you covered it. The last place we'll turn is Mark chapter 1. which I mentioned briefly, Mark chapter 1. Like, why? why are you going back over the beginning there? Is if There's a reason. Look at verse 14 there. It says, And after John, 
had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and repent and believe in the gospel. And as he was going along by the sea, he saw Simon and Andrew and the brother of Simon casting an end to sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left the nets and followed him. What does that have to do with the account over there in Ephesians he was teaching them? Everything. Jesus mentioned something very specific. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That word there, the Greek, in the original context of Septuagint, was pistuo. What does it mean? To believe something. It's not just a, I believe that's true. It was to believe with all your being. It produced something, didn't it? He said, repent, change. We talked about last week, to turn 180 degrees and go the opposite direction. It's to recognize an error, isn't it? What was the intent over there that, the, that Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus? That they might remember these things. Jesus was the reason that they were able to be in the church, wasn't it? Was able to be the church there, wasn't it? He wanted them to remember these things because they were surrounded by the epitome of what we call evil practice of sin, wasn't it? His encouragement there was for them to see that they still they had this opportunity for redemption. They had an opportunity to partake of what God's promise was, that mystery that we talked about. And it was through Christ revealing that that would be made possible, wouldn't it? What in them? You know what I'm saying? Christ revealed to them, made light of the things that they were erring in. Through his death, he, they were able to be redeemed to a point where they would be acceptable by practicing their faith in the Lord. His intention here was for them to be encouraged to continue that they might obtain an inheritance which had been set up before time even existed, right? It's hard for us to think about that. I, I mentioned that I spoke with some girls last weekend about, about God and they asked where God came from. And I told him, I said, it's hard for us to comprehend what exists out of space and time, doesn't it? But the fact that the Lord had set this up, that even before time existed, that we would have an opportunity for this. But the encouragement there is that he says, and all those we have, uh, we have all obtained, excuse me, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who work all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And him who also 
after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, there's that word pissed you again, believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who has given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. It's a pretty fancy, eloquent, swelling words there, isn't it? Just to sum up that they have heard this message that Christ has preached that the kingdom of God is at hand and they need to repent. That they might what? Have an inheritance, right? They might have a promise. He says, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Spirit was given to the church to continually counsel and guide and teach, wasn't it? That we might obtain the promise. Being Spirit of God. The question is, is are we willing to listen to it? That was the encouragement Paul was trying to teach them here. Listen, open your ears. This is an opportunity for us. It says, who has given a pledge of our inheritance with view of, to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory? For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the Lord God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Oh, there's that revelation I was talking about a little bit ago. He says that, what, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of his glory and of his inheritance in the saints? Then what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are the accordance with the working of the strength of his might that he brought about in Christ and went to you, raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power, and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the ones to come. And he put all things under subjection under his feet and gave him a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. Who are we? We're the church. We are the body. We are the hands and the feet. What was his, what was Paul's reckoning here of these words he shared them? It was that they recognize they're the body of Christ and they are to subject themselves to Christ. Only then can they have that inheritance to eternal life. But it was through God's plan of redemption through Christ that they had access to such a wonderful thing. That they might grow and have the knowledge and wisdom to minister to others about this and to obtain the promise which he had predestined for us. 
predestined for the corporate body, not for just we make up the individual members make up the corporate body of Christ. That's who the promise is offered to. Through his people. Paul's encouragement there was for them to understand these things. For them to continue to grow in the knowledge and nurture and admonition of the Lord. Despite the Demetriuses of their time and the silversmiths and all the tradesmen that sought to to take back what had been stolen from them, which wasn't right for theirs to begin with, was it? They were mad because their life was turned upside down that they couldn't teach what Diana wanted, right? Which was the, the deception of the flesh. So the intention was for Paul to encourage them despite what was surrounding them to continue to serve the Lord. That he had provided a better opportunity for them in Christ. That was the mystery, wasn't it? Well, thank you for your kind attention, for your patience this morning. Um, we'll all stand to be dismissed. About 15 minutes after the hour. We started 15 minutes late this morning. So, even trade, right? <laughs>